Well, I'd like to uh, welcome you all to this uh, second week in our series that we've entitled I Do, I Don't, I Will, I Won't, uh, about relationships, about marriage. And I just want to remind you that next week on Mother's Day, we'll be talking about um, uh, going all the way, going the distance in our relationships. And we had one programming note um, uh, the message on sex will have to wait until the 19th. So uh, if you're interested in sex, you'll have to wait until the 19th to hear about that. And uh, some said that it wasn't appropriate on Mother's Day, and I still don't understand that, but that's all right. We're going to do, uh, do it that way. Uh, so we're looking at uh, God's principles to take our relationships the distance. Let's review the key principle uh, from last week. To be truly fulfilled in life, you have to find the one. You have to find the one. Who is the one? Well, the one is Jesus Christ. To be fully alive, to be fully fulfilled, Jesus has to be number one in your life. Every one of us has this God-shaped vacuum in our soul. Uh, this, was, uh, this was talked about 1,700 years ago. And when we recognize this God-shaped vacuum in our soul, you'll notice that it's not a man-shaped vacuum, or it's not a woman-shaped vacuum, but it's a God-shaped vacuum. In order for us to have relationships that work, in order to have relationships and marriages that are powerful and meaningful, we have to make sure that Jesus Christ is number one, that he is the one that fulfills our needs. He is the one that gives us life, and he is the one that gives us joy. And so when we have that in place, then the rest seems to fall in place. So uh, you matter to him. The Bible says he's a passionate, jealous God. And uh, he wants a relationship with you more than anything else. And he will fight for it. So you matter to him. Jesus must be number one in your life. So in the context of Jesus being number one, how are we to find the two? How are we to find the one who will satisfy our and be our soulmate? The one who is our heartthrob, our best friend. How do we find the person that we want to spend the rest of our lives with? That's what we'll be talking about today. How do we find the two? So I thought the best way to start was to get some real wisdom and get that cooking a little bit. So um, I found some wisdom from... Some children, they usually have good wisdom when it comes to marriage and, and finding your soulmate. And so a group of children were asked different questions about marriage. And here's what they would say to you and I about finding the two. Question number one, how do you decide who to marry? Well, Alan, age 10, said you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports and she'd keep the chips and dip coming. Okay? That's a smart kid. Okay, that's Alan, age 10. Uh, so that's how you decide who you marry. Uh, Kristen, uh, age 10, said, uh, No person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. So th that usually comes, you know, a little bit later in the process. And then another question that was asked, children, what do most people do on a date? Okay, it's a good question. Lynette, age eight, says, dates are for having fun, and people should use them to get to know each other. Even boys have something to say if you listen long enough. 
And uh, some of you are aware of that, I'm sure. Uh, here's another question. Ask the children. What would you do on a first date that was turning sour or going bad? Here's what Chris, age nine, said. I'd run home and play dead. I, I, now I know some grown men that do that. I'd run home and play dead. The next day, I would call the newspapers and make sure they wrote about me in all the dead columns. Okay, so that's what you do if you're on a date that's going sour. Uh, here's another question. When is it okay to kiss someone? It's important when it comes to dating, right? Pam, age seven, says, when they're rich. Okay, that's when it's okay to kiss someone. Uh, another question. Is it better to be single or married? That's an important question today. Um, Anita, age nine, said, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. Okay, so I think Anita needs to be kind of uh, brought up to date in relationships. And then finally, uh, how would you make a marriage work? Ricky, age 10, said, tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. So that's how you would make sure that uh, you have a good relationship. Well, these are some good ideas. But again, uh, for our, our benefit, we want to look at God's word. How do we find the two? How do we find the one that we want to live with and experience life with for our, the rest of our lives? Well, I'd like to start by telling you a story. And this is a story, uh, but this is a story based on, uh, I've done 30 years of ministry, and I've done well over 200 weddings. So I've done a lot of premarital counseling, and I've done a lot of marriage counseling in my 30 years of ministry. And so I wrote this story as a compilation of things that I've learned and heard over these last 30 years. I think you'll agree that this is a fairly common story today. The story often goes like this. Once upon a time, boy meets girl. Boy thinks girl smells good. Boy thinks girl looks good. Boy asks girl out for a date. Girl giggles and says, yes. Boy takes girl to a restaurant. Girl orders expensive meal. Boy panics. Boy pays anyway. Girl asks boy to her apartment. Boy goes to girl's apartment. Boy and girl go in. Boy and girl sit down on the sofa. Boy looks googly-eyed at the girl. Girl looks googly-eyed at the boy. Boy tilts his head to the right. Girl tits, tilt, excuse me, <laughs> that didn't that sound right. Uh, girl tilts her head to the right. Boy and girl kiss. Boy and girl like each other. Boy stays the night at girl's apartment. Boy and girl start doing married things. Even though boy and girl aren't married, boy and girl live together. Try out marriage. One day, boy meets another girl. Dumps girl. Breaks girl's heart. Girl rebounds with another boy and does this over and over and over again. One day, boy meets special girl. Girl meets special boy. Boy and girl marry different boy and girl. Ten years later, they are all divorced and they all wonder what went wrong. Now, this is a story that's made up from my own personal experience. And friends, you've you got to hear this. This happens all the time. This is normal. This is what the world says is normal. This is what you do when you grow up and you're looking to find the two. Now, obviously, it's an oversimplification of 
But I think most of us would agree that it's what is common. It's what is normal today. Boy and girl do married things, even if they're not married. Practicing for marriage. Playing house. It doesn't work out. They practice for divorce. And this goes on time after time after time. So when the marriage gets tough, they go back to the old pathway, the old normal, which has been practiced for years, and they end up divorced. God says, here's what I want you to hear today. And this is the the take home right here early in the message. God wants something better for his children. God wants something better for you. He doesn't want you to experience normal. He doesn't want you to experience the common thing that we experience in life today. Here's the key thought for today. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. If you want something that you've never had, you must do something that you've never done. Okay, just remember that. If you want something that you've never had, you must do something that you've never done. If you want to go to a place that you've never been, you have to travel a road that you've never traveled before. If you want what everybody else in the world wants in terms of a relationship, then you do what everybody else does in terms of a relationship. But if you want a different road, a different path, and a different outcome, you must do things differently. Now, this isn't something Dwayne made up. This is God's word speaking to us today. If you want to do something different than the world, you have to do, take a different path. And that's what God wants us to experience today. Now, a wonderful passage of scripture is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Those of you that have grew up around church, you know these verses. But I want to read these verses in the message. A wonderful, uh, a wonderful translation that's very readable, very, it's, it's, it's easy to understand. And listen to these words in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 from the message. Here's what Paul says. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, right? That's your common life. That's your normal life. Your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And place it before God as the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Remember what we talked about last week? If God is number one, then everything else falls into place. Fix your attention on God. Make Him number one. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, the common, the normal, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. You see what Paul's saying? Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture, the normal, that that's what we go doing. It's kind of the non-thinking way of doing it. We watch movies, we watch television, we read books, we listen to the news, we hear people's conversations, and the normal way of doing relationships doesn't work. Over 50% of all marriages, more than 50%, end up in divorce. 80% of second marriages end up in divorce. Something's not working. The way the society has told us that we should do marriage and building relationships doesn't work. And if we want a different outcome, we have to travel a different pathway. And that's what God says, that's what God tells us in Romans chapter 12. And you say, well, Dwayne, that's just not normal. 
I mean, that's not what society tells us. I understand that. I know that. And that's what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make today. Don't be normal. Don't be common. Don't be ordinary. Don't do what the rest of the world does because it's not working. I don't want my kids and my grandchildren to grow up normal. I don't want them to grow up common. I don't want them to grow up thinking that the way the world does it, well, it's the way that we do it as Christ followers as well. Normal doesn't work. Let me give you some examples. Um, how many of you like to do your finances in a normal way? Okay, here's normal way that we do finances. And this isn't just my idea. This is what we see all around us. The normal way of doing finances is to have a lot of debt. Our country tells us that's the way to do it. Our government tells us that's the way to do it. The world tells us that's the way to do it. Visa and MasterCard tells us that's the way to do it. The normal way to do things, the normal average American spends $1.08 for every dollar they earn. That's normal. I had a girl tell me uh, before the first service, uh, she said that she's been tithing for about a year and a half. And before that, she was kind of hit and miss, but she was really made a commitment to start tithing and doing it God's way. She said, I can't believe. She said, I just got through paying off a $4,000 credit card because she's doing it God's way. She's doing it the way that God wants us to do it. She's not doing it the normal way. The normal way is to keep piling up debt. That's what the world does. I don't want to be normal in my finances. I don't want to be normal in how I find the two. You shouldn't either. I don't want to be normal in the way I relate to my enemies. See, the way we're to relate to our enemies is the way the world does it. There's this, this, this unbelievable hatred to these two young men that set off these bombs in Boston. It wasn't the fact that these, there were all these poor people that were killed and injured. That was terrible. But this outpouring, when you read the op-eds and all that, this outpouring of hatred towards anybody that's Muslim or anybody that's different or anybody like, just this pouring. You know what? I don't want to do relationships like that. I want those, certainly I want those young men to be brought to trial. The one is dead. I want that other young man to be brought to trial. But I don't want to relate to my enemies the way that the world does. The world says, that's what gets us into this mess. The reason that the world hates their enemies is why Muslims sometimes want to blow us up. And we do the same thing right back to them. We don't, so I want to do my enemies differently. I don't want to hate them. I want to be in a relationship with them. I want to show them the love of Jesus. I want to show them that there's a different way, a different path. I don't want to do the normal thing of hating them. Or how about other relationships? Uh, people of a different color, a different religion, a different political persuasion, a different sexual persuasion. All of these things. The normal way to do these things is to be skeptical about these people. and Say, oh, they're different and they're wrong. I don't want to do normal. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, love all people. Show all people the love of Jesus. That's what's going to change their hearts. You love a person, you get in a relationship with a person that's different from you, and you show them the love of Jesus. You show them that there can be a change in their life if they surrender their life to Jesus Christ. I don't want to be normal. I don't be normal in my finding the two. I don't be normal in my finances. I don't be normal in dealing with my enemies. I don't want to be normal in dealing with people that are different from me. I want to do it Jesus' way. How about you? I want to do it Jesus' way. I don't want to do it the normal way. And I don't want to be normal in finding the two. The normal is practicing for marriage by having sex, living together, 
Practicing for divorce by breaking up over and over and over again. Practicing, and then ultimately, you find yourself married once or twice or three times, and you're saying, this was normal? I don't want to do normal that way. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. These are important words. Listen to these. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, normal, common, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. The wisdom, the normal, the common in this world is foolishness in God's sight. I don't know about you, friends, but we've got to do this life thing, this being a Christ follower thing, completely different. Because if we want a different, uh, if we want a different outcome, we've got to travel a different path. The world standards or God's standards. Foolishness or wisdom. Normal or abnormal. Give me abnormal every time. So here's some foolish thoughts, which are a very different way of thinking regarding finding the two. Now, what we're going to talk about today is that God gives us a higher standard. Okay, we have the standard that's normal and common that we see in the world, and we've kind of bought into it. We've bought into it. I can't tell you how many Christians think it's okay to, for instance, have sex before marriage or to have sex while we're waiting to find the right partner and all of that. And so all this is normal. This is, and this is even normal for many Christians. Okay, so if we don't want the normal outcome, we've got to do things differently. And so that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to show you three abnormal principles from God's standards, not the world's standards, God's standards. So these all come from God's standards. Uh, the first principle is this. I will have a higher standard on who I will see, on who I will date, on who I will court, on who I will spend time with. The bottom line is, it's not what does he or she look like, but what's in his or her heart? Now, we can, it gets kind of dangerous territory here. I realize that. But gentlemen, be careful when, um, you know, someone wants to set you up with a girl, right? And gals, you have to be careful, too, because it'll mess you up. I mean, you know, if your friend says, hey, buddy, I want to set you up with a friend, and she just loves children, what that usually translates into means that she has three kids and she's looking for a husband. So be careful. You know, that could be dangerous territory. Or she's great. She's the outdoor type, right? That means as she hunts and chews and can field dress a bear in under two minutes. So you, you want to be careful. That, or gals, you set your girlfriends up. Say, I want, I, there's this guy. He's so amazing. He's, he's a strong, strong family ties, which means he's over 35 and lives at home. So, so be very careful of somebody trying to set you up. Instead of somebody trying to set you up, how about if you set it up with a different level of standards? How about if you go with God's standards? As a Christ follower, as a fully devoted follower of Christ, what is the higher standard that I will have in my dating, in my courting, in my trying to find the two? Here is a higher standard from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And listen to this. This, is, this verse has been very misunderstood, but let's get it clear today. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? First of all, what this doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we're not supposed to have friends that are non-Christians. In fact, if you look at Jesus, he had a lot more friends and acquaintances that were non-Christians than were Christ followers. Okay? So it doesn't mean that. 
But to be yoked together is a completely different concept. To be yoked together is having this, this, this relationship that is so deep and so intimate that we call it marriage. That kind of a deep relationship. He said, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So, what does that mean? Well, it's an analogy of animals plowing a field. Uh, when you yoke animals together, and the Old Testament says, do not yoke together an ox and a donkey. Now, that just makes common sense, right? But it helps you understand it. Why don't you yoke together an ox and a donkey? Well, it would be cruel to both of them. One is clean, one is unclean. One is a large animal, one is small. One is strong, one is weak. It's unfair to both. And it's not only unfair to both, the field doesn't get plowed. <laughs> so it just doesn't work, right? And so, so the same thing with believers and non-believers. Not that you're not supposed to have friends and have a lot of acquaintances and be involved in their lives and all of that, but to be unequally yoked marriage with an unbeliever, it doesn't work. I mean, you can ask dozens of, especially women in our church, who they, they didn't come to Christ until after they were married, so now they're unequally yoked with their husband. And even though they love their husband and they want their husband to come to Christ so desperately, they sit in here at church Sunday after Sunday by themselves, wondering when are they going to be united and joined together in spirit. It doesn't work. I love my husband, but he's kind of an ox. You know, and I'm kind of a donkey. You know, there's different standards. What matters to the world? So... Let me, let me put it in a little bit more um, reachable place. So, gals, you're looking for the one. In, your case, in this case, the two, right? You're looking for the guy that you're going to love. He's going to be your soulmate. He's going to be awesome. And so you look and you notice that he's good looking and he has six-pack abs. By the way, girls, we all have six-pack abs. They're just hidden, some of us. Uh, they're... They're hidden, you know, under years of, of, of other things. And uh, but, but so you're looking at this guy. He's good looking. He's a nice guy. Uh, he makes a good living. He provides for you. And this is the perfect guy for me, right? Well, not necessarily. L- ladies, let me say it this way. When your child is sick in the hospital... Or when there's a tragedy in your family. Or when there's something going on in your life that is, you just can't survive it. Whether your husband has six-pack abs or a good job or good money makes absolutely no difference. Here's what you want. You want a man who will be on his knees praying for that child to a God he knows and asking for God to do a work in that child's life. All the other things become invisible. If we allow other things, how a person looks, their personality, if we allow those things to become the most important things in our lives, we have missed it. Ladies, gentlemen, you want a woman that when things get tough, that she is on her knees and she is praying to a God that she knows personally and intimately, and she is reaching up to heaven to pray for That's the woman that you want. Because you know what? Let's be really honest. The six-pack abs thing. After 43 years of marriage, this is what you get right here. Okay? We, we, our former worship pastor, Ryan Lunsford, his wife, came over to our house one time, saw a picture of us married. And she said, wow, Pastor Dwayne used to be a hunk. You know, nobody wants to be used to be anything. You know? This is what you get after 43. But I'll tell you what. 
When something goes wrong in our family, when something goes wrong between Sherry and I, I am the first one on my knees praying to the God I know and saying, Lord, help us. Help us. That's what sustains a marriage. The good looks, the money, the job, the personality, all gone. But when that person loves Jesus, when Jesus is number one in his heart, when Jesus is number one in her heart, it will sustain you for this entire life and you will be happy. Not because the circumstances are great, but you will be happy because you know the one and you have found the two. That's what God wants for you and for me. How do you know that a person is passionate about Christ? Well, I'll tell you how you can't know. You're not going to know that by... Looking at a bar or a club, that's not going to happen. You know, I used to be very critical about 15 years ago of this online dating thing. I'm not critical anymore. You know why? You can discover a lot more about somebody with this online dating uh, than you can by meeting somebody in a bar or a club or something like that. I mean, you can discover about their interests. I mean, you can't discover everything, but there's a lot there that's pretty good. I, it's amazing to me how many people in our own church have found each other through Christian Mingle or something like that. So, so the idea is that you're looking for someone that's not just a face. You're looking for someone that's not just a body. You're looking for someone that's not just a personality. You're looking for someone who is fully and deeply in love with Jesus Christ. If you want a marriage that's going to work and a marriage that's going to last. When we have tough times, we find ourselves on our knees before our Heavenly Father. Now, if you want to be normal, if you want to be foolish by the world's standards, just go, go with what the world tells you. Just maintain that standard of relationship and uh, finances and everything else. Just remember, do what the world says. If you want something that will sustain, something that will last, something that will be greater, then you have to have a higher standard. And that's where Jesus Christ comes and says, I will give you a higher standard. You put me first and foremost. You become a fully devoted follower of Christ, and that will change your life. So one of the things that disturbs me is that um, the statistics of marriage in the church is very similar to the statistics of marriage outside the church. In other words, about the same number of people get divorced in the church as outside the church. That troubles me a lot. But let me tell you something that does change. When you're a couple that does three things together, when you pray together, when you worship together, and when you serve together, the percentage of people of those people that get a divorce, 17% instead of 51%. If you want to make a change, don't just come and sit in a pew. You pray together. You worship together. You serve together. Why? Because both people in the relationship are putting number one, number one, and making number two, number two. Have a higher standard on who you will see, who you will date, and ultimately who you will marry. Here's a second principle. Have a higher standard on what you will do. Have a higher standard on what you will do. First Peter 1 says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. The word holy means literally pure. Do you think that has anything to do with our relationships? Do you think that has to do with our sexuality? Do you think that has to do with our morality? Do you think that has to do with our ethics? Yes, it has to do with all of that. If you want to do the world standards, if you want to do the way the world does it, 
Don't expect to have a different outcome. But if you want to do God's standards up here, you're going to have to do things differently. If you want a different destination, you have to travel a different pathway. And God gives you that in 1 Peter 1, verses 14 and 15. Just what I read. Because when you lived in ignorance, that's before you knew the truth of God's word and you knew the truth of his standards. He said, I have promised you that if you recognize I'm holy, I will give you the ability to live a holy life. Pure. So let's play a little game. Let's play a game that's called the appropriate, inappropriate game. Okay? This is about the sanctity of marriage. So that's what we're talking about. The sanctity of marriage. Keeping your marriage pure. So here's the, uh, so as you know, last month, Sherry was in uh, Michigan for a month getting some uh, medical uh, uh, treatments. And so I was here uh, by myself living at home alone for that month. Now, let's say somebody after a Sunday when Sherry's gone uh, says, uh, Pastor Dwayne, I liked your sermon. I'd like you to come over for dinner tonight and I'd like you to spend the night. OK, uh, and and then we'll and you know, we'll act, we'll act like married people. How many of you would think that is appropriate? How many think that's inappropriate? Raise your hand. Yeah, good. Very good. You guys are good students. Excellent. Excellent. OK, now how about this? How about no sex? But you're still kind of intimate, you know, physically you're intimate, just no sex. Uh, you know, there's petting and all that. So how many of you would think that's appropriate? Oh, oh, oh. How about inappropriate? <laughs> OK, very good. You're still with it. OK, how about this? OK, let's bring it down a notch. That's kind of ridiculous. How about if we just cuddle and kiss and hold hands? Okay, and no, no sexual touching, just cuddling and kissing. And how many of you would think that would be appropriate? How about inappropriate? Okay, okay. So you guys are really a tough crowd. So how about this? Nothing physical, no touching, but we share intimate details of our lives, and we have this because of that we have this strong emotional attachment. Nothing physical is going on, but we share intimate details of our lives and we have this strong emotional attachment. How many of you think that's appropriate? How about inappropriate? Okay, absolutely. So here's the question. Why? Why do you think that's inappropriate? And you would say, well, because I believe in the sanctity of marriage. I believe that you have made a commitment under God to Sherry to be faithful to make her the only one, and that those things that you described, every one of them, were things that should be only done in this committed, monogamous, godly, Christ-centered marriage. I believe in the sanctity of marriage. And if you were to say that, I would say, good answer. Okay, excellent answer. The sanctity of marriage. Well, here's another question. How about those people outside of marriage? How about those people who are single? How about those people who were married and now are either widowed or divorced? They're outside of marriage. How does the sanctity of marriage dictate anything to them? Does anything change? Well, here's, here's my question for you. Why would, it, why would the same thing not apply to people who are single or outside of marriage? Marriage is still sanctified. It's still supposed to be fenced around. It's still supposed to be. Why would we do marriage things that are only inside this fence? Why would we do marriage things outside the marriage and think that somehow that's all right? Maybe you've never thought about it that way. The Bible says, do not pursue the customs and standards of this world. Let God change the way you think. Oh, honey, I love you. Let's do married things. Let's do things that kind of look like commitment, but they're not really. And uh, hope for the best. 
Well, it doesn't work. And so Paul addresses this, this sanctity, this fence of marriage uh, like this when it comes to relationships. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Okay, this is why when we read this verse, I want you to be hearing what you're hearing. You're hearing why the Bible's clear about having, keeping sex for the sanctity of marriage. Okay? I'm not saying why something's bad. I'm saying why something's good. Okay? Sex and the sanctity of marriage. This is why it's good. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much, listen to this, a spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. Paul here says, and this is confirmed throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, Paul says here that if you take that beautiful gift that God has given us, say, hey, by the way, this is kind of a bonus. This isn't even the Sunday we're talking about sex. See, that's in two weeks, you know. They say, oh, I really got to come back then. So, so, so in the sanctity of marriage, this thing that we call sex is so beautiful and it's so wonderful because it's more than flesh on flesh. The world wants you to think it's flesh on flesh. The world wants you to think it's just, well, it's just sex. It's just a sex act. It's just copulation. That's all it is. It's, it's nothing more than that. And God says, no, when you make love, you are making a covenant with that woman, with that man. Body, soul, and spirit. You're making a covenant, a promise. You are making a union. You are entering into each other's lives in a powerful way. It's emotional. It's physical. But most of all, it's spiritual. And when we take the spiritual part out of sex, what you get is our society. That's what you get. When you take spirituality out of sexuality, you get our society. The act is saying... I want to be a part of your life. It's a covenant, a promise. It's a two become one. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. I want you to hear that word very carefully. Marriage should be honored by all. Who's all? All are married people, single people, divorced people, separated people. This sanctity, this fence around marriage should be honored by all. And so why on earth would we do anything to debase or lessen the power of the two become one body, soul and spirit relationship? Whether you're in the marriage or outside the marriage, you are to honor it. See what I'm saying? That's a different way of thinking about sex. It's a different way of thinking about marriage. It's a different standard. But if you want a different solution, if you want a different destination, you have to do things in a different way. And God provides the way. He provides the path. Now, there's one last principle to finding and keeping the two. We talked about these two things. I will have a higher standard on who I will see, right? Who I will see, date, court, etc. Secondly, we talked about I will have a higher standard on what I will do. I will keep the sanctity of marriage by keep, whether I'm married or single. I will keep sex only within that fence, that guard of the two become one relationship, body, soul, and spirit. I will keep it in that. Here's the third thing. I will have a higher standard on how I will live with my two. Now, this is for those of us who are married. I will have a higher standard on how I will live with my two. Let me talk 
finally to those who are married. Today, marriages aren't very good. Uh, you may have found your two, but, well, things aren't so good. So let, let's think this through for a moment. So maybe you didn't do everything right on the front end. I, I doubt that almost any of us did everything right on the front end. If you're feeling guilty about that, that's, that's history. Don't do that. But, but, so we did things wrong on the front end, but maybe you made some mistakes along the way in the marriage. Maybe you got married before you should have, or maybe you were pregnant, or any number of things, and maybe that wasn't the right, but, but you still found something in that man or that woman that was compelling, and it was something that was beautiful and something that you fell in love with, and, and it was good. There was a level of intimacy, a level of passion. There was some union, some consistent, I love you, that worked. Then everything goes wrong. What happened between the, this is the person for me, and I don't love this person anymore. What happened between those two things? Well, we all know the answer to this. Um, life happens. Sin happens. We get distracted. We start getting selfish. We start thinking of ourselves rather than our spouses. We, we're not as good as we once were. And we wake up one morning and, and we think, man, how did this ever happen to me? Now, let's review our key thought here. If you want something that you've never had, you've got to do something that you've never done. Marriages, if you want something you once had, you must do something you once did. Let me give you the verse for that. It's found in Revelation 2.4. But you walked away from your first love. Now, Jesus here is talking about his relationship with the church and with you and I specifically. But he's also talking about the relationship that we have with each other in marriage, right? But you walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? Turn back. Recover your dear early love. I love that. Turn back. So you say, okay, what was it that I, how was it that I fell in love with Sherry how was it that I acted around her? What were the things that I did that was powerful in our relationship that made us enjoy each other? Well, I mean, I've told you the story. We were uh, at a missionary conference. Every night we went out and we talked about God and we talked about our futures and we talked about our relationship and we talked about dreams and hopes. And I'd call her on the phone and I'd give her two ninety nine flowers that are now thirty two ninety nine, and and I'd give her cards and and I'll do all of these things. I would do anything to let her know how much she meant to me. What Jesus said in the book of Revelation, if you're stuck in your marriage, if you're about ready to dump Mr. Potato Head, if you're thinking about finding somebody new, finding another two, what you need to do is you, you go back to your first love. What were the things that you did? If you want a different, uh, if you want a different uh, destination, you need to find a different pathway. What are the things that I did then? The surprises, the, the dates at night, the flowers and phone calls and dates and cards and all the prayers and the being on our knees before each other and before God. All of a sudden, guess what? Sherry, who had slipped down to number seven or eight because of me, she's now back at number two. Question. Have you slipped below God's standards in your dating, in your courting, in your acts? your activities, the things you do in your marriage? 
Have you slipped down to where your two is not two, but six or seven or eight? Have you not put God number one in your relationship? God is calling us to a higher standard. If we want a different outcome, we have to go on a different path. And that different path is God's way to honor the sanctity of marriage, to honor the one that you made vows to, that I made vows to almost 43 years ago, to honor those vows, to revisit those vows, to understand those vows, and say, this I still pledge to you with all my heart. God desires the best for us. But the best is not normal. The best is God's standards. And may each of you experience that in your life. So would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we are so prone to listening to the world and so prone to buying into their philosophy. And it just makes sense. We laugh at it on television. We look at it at movies. We say, yeah, that's, that's really funny. And, and yet everybody's miserable. You look at almost every Hollywood marriage and they're all so messed up they don't even know what they're doing. And yet we look to them for what is right. But no, Father, you have said, look to me. My love for you is so great. I have given you a higher standard, a way of doing dating, a way of doing courting, a way of doing marriage that is so high above the world's standards that you will never be the same. Father, may we receive this truth into our very beings. May we contemplate it. May we think about it. May we consider the scriptures that we've read today. But above everything else, Father, may we have a higher standard for our relationships, a standard that is pleasing to you. And if it's pleasing to you, Lord, we know it'll be pleasing to the one we love. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. We've come to the time in our service and in our month where we come to the table together as brothers and sisters in Christ to celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, the great things he has done for us. A few mechanics of how we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Hope. At these tables at the front, there will be a plate of bread and a cup with juice. And we just ask that you come and you pick a piece of bread and you dip it in the cup. That's called intinction. That's the way we do it. Some of you come from high church traditions where you drink of the cup. We don't do that. Just take your bread, dip it in the cup, and then partake. Another thing is that we practice open communion. We don't have fences around our table. So if you are...